everybody. Good to see you this morning. I do, uh, some people snuck in. Les and Rita from Guatemala. So good to see you guys and family. We have seen you recently up on the screen a time or two, but uh, it's good to have you here in person. I love having you guys visit with us. Um, We're continuing on with this series, A Journey of the Soul, and today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. Verses 14 to 30, because it's a journey, I want to kind of help you remember the steps that we've taken thus far as we've worked through these first eight weeks of our year. Um, We started in Psalm 23 just realizing that really this spiritual life is a journey. We're walking with Jesus. He is leading us, and we're taking our direction from him. And we moved on to Ephesians 2 to talk about the fact that that this whole journey is just permeated in grace, that, that it all starts with what God has done for us. That's where we have to start. Um, then we, we looked at Zacchaeus responding to the call that, that, that the journey actually begins from our vantage point when Christ calls us and we come and we follow, uh, when we are accepted and loved by him and we respond to that. And then last week we looked at these two texts from Paul about training ourselves to be godly, about how we can actually practice bringing our heart, uh, the, the, the new heart we've, given, we've been given by God, we can bring our mind and our body and our relational patterns into surrender to who God has made us to be by practicing these things day by day. A lot, lot to cover there last week. Well, today we're moving into this idea that, that, that after we're called by Christ and as we're growing in him and becoming more like Jesus, one of the things we do is we serve. We, we, we live out this mission that he's called us to. And so today, to look at that today, we're going to look at this passage in Matthew 25. It's a story I think that for many of you is familiar. It's wedged between this parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come and the sheep and the goats. There's this story that we call the parable of the talents. And uh, I'm going to bring Pauline up if she will come and read the text for us. You can stand. It's on. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. 
The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one who, with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five and more. <clears throat> His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faith faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the master who who had received that sorry then the man who had received one bag of gold came master he said i knew you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed so i was afraid and i went out and hid your gold in the ground see here it, it, what see here is what belongs to you his master replied you wicked lazy servant so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, bless the reading of your word. So the, the text starts with the phrase, again, it will be like, and the question is, what is it? Right? If you read that, what will be like? So, so if you look at it again, obviously it's the thing he's talking about in the story before. And if you go back to verse 1, it says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven. That's what Matthew says repeatedly when he's talking about the kingdom of God. He uses that term, will be like. So the it in this story is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. And the whole parable then becomes about what living out the kingdom of heaven now. This is what it looks like as we live in between the time that, that Jesus has come and initiated the coming of the kingdom and his return. He was known for the stories he told, right? And, and, and they all had uh, meaning, and they're the kind of stories that you think about, and you kind of peel back layer after layer over time. And, and this story is a reminder that God entrusts people who follow him with gifts given through and empowered by his spirit. He, he has left us empowered to do things, to, to take what is his and share it with the world while he's gone. 
the imagery of a man going away on a journey. So it's, like I say, it's, it's this image of Christ has returned to heaven. Obviously, he's with us still, but he will return again for the kingdom to come in its, in its fullness. But during this time, the story reminds us that God entrusts what is his to us. He calls his servants, and that's the phrase, he entrusts his property to them. He gives them what is actually his. And then he gives specifics. It says to one, now, translations do funny things. Five bags of gold, I don't know what your translation says. The Greek literally says, to one he gave five talents, one, two, and one, one. That's the exact Greek phrasing. And talent is, is a weight. It's, it's, a, it's a measure of weight. And so, it, you know, it's, it's a bit weird for us to use that because we don't know what kind of money it was. We know it was some type of money, but we don't know whether it was gold, silver, so we don't know the value but we know that, that there's a proportional sizing. Um, it gives them to each according to his ability. Now, I want you to hear that really clearly. He doesn't say, and I'm going to hit this again, he doesn't give it to them according to their worth. He gives it to them according to their ability, what they will be able to do with it. And then he goes on his journey. He's giving them what is his, and he's going away and letting them use what is actually his. And the way it relates to us today is we, we remember we're, God gives different gifts to different people. I'm jumping a little ahead, and I'm kind of tying the story and the interpretation together, but this is an image of God giving us these things that are His, these spiritual gifts, these abilities. Really, it's the Spirit of God working in us and through us, and He's giving it to different people in different ways. This is all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit... Right? God giving of himself is given for the common good. All these are for the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. These are manifestations of the Holy Spirit in us, these gifts that we've been given, these things that were his that he's entrusted to us to use until he returns. And, and part of this journey of the soul that we've been talking about over the last five weeks is to realize that as you progress following the shepherd, as you walk on this pathway of grace, as you commit to him, as you're, you're growing in discipleship, he has wired you in a certain way for his kingdom's benefit. He has wired you to take what he has, he's entrusted it to you, and wants you to multiply the impact of, of what he's got. And back to the story, you see two specific things. You see their response and their reward. The responses fall into two categories, servant one and two. They immediately go out, they put the money to work, they increase it. We don't know what kind of work it was, but it was fruitful. If I could invest with those guys, I would invest with those guys, right? They doubled whatever amount of money it was in this period of time. They went right away to do it. That's their response. Number one and number two, if you read the text there, go and they do it right away. Number three, went off, he dug a hole, and he buried. Now, in that culture, this was a normal way to protect your possessions. If you want to protect it, this is not the normal way to invest it. But I want you to just look at the, at the language of withdrawal. withdrawal. They're, they're engaging, one and two, but he, it says he went off, and he dug a hole, and he hid it. There's this withdrawal, this stark contrast. And that contrast is amplified in their reward that they get, too, right? It's that servants one and two have doubled the money, and they, they say the exact same thing, if you follow the wording in the story. Master, you entrusted me with this. See, I have gained you this much more. Same for number one, same for number two. And the master responds with identical wording to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things. So the Greek is literally, you have been faithful with little. I will put you in charge of much. And then it says, come and share in your master's happiness. The Greek where there's literally joy. He's really saying, it's, it's almost this image of him opening the door and saying, enter into my joy. Come into, be, be joyful with me in what you've done. Servant number three, different story. Totally different phrasing. There's no master, you entrusted me with one, and look, I've gained one more. It's a totally different phrase. He starts, he says, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed, and so I was afraid. Here's what belongs to you. Here's the one. I took care of it. And the response of the master is quite different there, isn't it? You knew that I wanted to increase. You knew this about me, did you? You knew, you, you even got it that I wanted you to multiply this, but at the very least, you could have taken it to the bankers and you would have earned a little interest, but instead you hid it. And he takes that talent, he gives it to another, he throws the worthless servant out. And, and here's the question. There's a stark difference between number one, number two, and number three. But what made the difference? What made the difference between these two that were able to double the investment that the, that the father gave them, or that the master gave them, and this one who only hid it away. And I think it comes back to their initial responses when he returns. Number one and two are like, Master, you entrusted me with this. Here is what I did. There's this openness. There's this joy. There's this excitement. And number three, I knew what you were like, and I was afraid. And I think it, the difference really comes down to the way that they viewed or understood the master. One and two saw him as one who had generously entrusted them with what was his. They, they, they sensed this openness and this relationship, and they were willing to go out and do something with it. Number three saw him as someone to be afraid of. See, if you come back to what we've been talking about in this series, number one and number two, I feel like we're walking on this pathway of grace. They were... They were free enough with the master's possessions to go take a risk to try to do something with it because they knew that the master wasn't about their, what they did. He was about a relationship with them. Number three was scared. He didn't want to lose anything. He wouldn't take a risk. He was basing his entire relationship with the master on what he could produce, and he was scared to lose anything. So he didn't do anything. And so if we're going to reflect on what God has entrusted us with, these gifts. And if we're going to think about how we can use these gifts for him and his kingdom, we have to start for a few minutes with clarifying our picture of God. So much of the way that we view the world, and from that, the way that we act and we live in the world, comes from the internal, the, the kind of subconscious understandings we have about who God is and what he's like. It flows out of who we conceive God to actually be. And it's an important picture that shapes our lives. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he, ha what he at a given time may say or may do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, now this is important, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. 
Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. See, often we, we have this idea or we even think we know what we think about God, right? We th- I, I know what I conceive. He's my loving father. But, but the reality is sometimes our actions belie that. And they show that maybe what we say we think about God, we don't actually think about God. I've come back over and over during this whole pandemic to see people terrified of, of a couple things. Number one, the government's going to destroy the church. Number two, it's all going to fall apart. Number three, we're losing everything. We're in great, great danger. And I keep wanting to say, who is God? God is not threatened by a pandemic, right? This is almighty God. The earth is the Lord's. And, and so many times our actions flow out of a skewed sense of not really getting that about who God is. And often it takes an encounter with God or a challenge to help us see that. You remember the end of Job's story in Job 42.5. Job says to God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Right? And so many times we, we think we know who God is. We think we talk about him. We, we know the truths about him. But in our gut, in our deep conscious experience of God, we, we're afraid. We don't know who he is. We see that the servants had a mental image of the master. And, and to find out when you think, okay, well, how do I know what my, my mental image is? Often you have to start with your own actions or your experiences and kind of work it back. I don't know about you, but, but I've had times in my life, it's hard when you guys are wearing masks. I appreciate you all wearing masks, but nod your head with me when I say this so that I know you're with me. But have you ever had this experience where you just have this kind of pit in, the, in your stomach? You just feel something's not right. And you know it, and you can't figure out what it is, but you just don't, something's not right. And so you start kind of thinking back through your day, you kind of trace it back, and then you can realize, oh, that's what it is. It, this thing happened, or somebody said something, or I said something, or I did something wrong. And, and very often with our conception of who God is, we have to start with our actions and trace it back to see who we really think God is. What we say and what is true of what we think can often be contradictory. We can talk about a God of grace and love, and yet we're not very graceful or loving with other people or with ourselves. Some people talk about, oh yeah, God is grace, he loves me, and then they brag on themselves all day long, cut themselves down, talk about what an idiot they are, all the mistakes they've made, or they're that way with other people, they're extremely judgmental and condescending toward others. You have to look at that and then trace back, who is God? What's he actually like? Who do I actually believe he is? As we look at the servants and their actions, it becomes really clear, servant number three had this mental picture of a hard God that leads to fear. And I'm not reading it into the text here. That's exactly what he says. I knew, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed, so I was afraid. I didn't want to risk anything because I was worried that it would come back on me. He didn't want to risk. He didn't want to lose because he was afraid of God. He, he didn't understand that the very relationship he had with the Father was the foundation here, not his production, not how well he did, but, but the fact that he, he was the master's servant. 
He forgot that pathway of grace. And, you know, people get nervous here when we read this because I just want Jesus to say, look, I'm not a hard man. The master's not a hard man. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, first of all, you knew that about me, and so it doesn't even make sense that you wouldn't try to multiply something because you know that I like return on my investment. You knew that about me. And sometimes people say, well, I don't like this parable because it talks about God being hard and doing all these things. Well, I want you to think about that just a minute. God is in the business of redeeming humanity and restoring creation and renewing it. So if, if you think that that is his business, that's what he wants to multiply, to me it makes perfect sense that God is a God who goes and he reaps where he didn't sow. He takes people that nobody thinks God cares about. He takes people that, that the church would look their nose down upon and, and, he, and he reaps a harvest there. He multiplies. See, that, that's... That's, but, but, but the man, the servant number three, misunderstands that whole picture. The key is, is to realize this servant's perception of God led him to fear. And that led him to paralysis. And that's one of the things I've said through this pandemic, too. If, if you're constantly living in fear of what's going to happen, just read Galatians 5, and 23. Fear is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not. Something is in you is causing you to be afraid when, when the reality is God holds us in his hand and not even death can take us out of that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, the other servants, they saw the master differently. They realized he'd entrusted them with what was his, and that they had nothing, and yet he gave them this. And for them, it was a God of grace that leads to joy. They were willing to act. They weren't fearful. And they multiplied what the master had given them and were welcomed into his joy. And that's right, joy. It's the same master as number three, the exact same person. The only difference is the starting point of their understanding of their relationship with him. And we have to see, too, that if, if we see God ultimately as a God of grace who loves to offer mercy, it frees us to live in joy. In Romans 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, not by all our good stuff that we've done for God, because of this we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained access into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. It's all about what he's done. Yes, he wants me to work, he wants me to, he's entrusted me with things to use for him. But the foundation of our relationship is not how good a servant I am. It's his love and mercy and grace for me. And that frees me to, to, to have freedom to serve even in risky ways. Number three, wouldn't risk losing anything because his own actions or what he felt kept him in good standing with the master. I've got to at least keep what he's given me. Number one and number two took the risk because they, they could see this relationship with the master was deeper than what they produced. You know, Moses, before, uh, when he's handing off to Joshua, in Deuteronomy 31.8, Moses says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You see what Moses is anchoring it in? It's not, Joshua, you've got the skills. You've seen me lead these people. You know what to do. He says, God's with you every single moment of every single day. He will never leave you, forsake you. Do not be afraid. We can risk failure, we can risk embarrassment, uh, because the love of God for us is not conditioned on our performance. G. 
Jesus told the disciples before he ascended into heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. This is Matthew. He's saying, I'm, I'm in charge here, guys. All authority is mine. So do this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. I've got work for you to do, guys. But it's not the work that keeps you safe. It's my presence that keeps you safe. You can be free to serve, even when you fail. Because I'm with you now and always. And see, this is how the pathway of grace always plays out. We respond to the call. We begin, we, we, we hear Jesus call us and we begin to, to, to seek to surrender parts of our lives. We, we try to train ourselves in God and it's working with the Spirit of God. And, th and then he gives us these gifts to use. And you know what? If, if it comes back to us producing, if we shift back off that pathway of grace to what we can do for God to keep our relationship safe, you know why we, this is not my notes, but I've got time, right? Yeah. You know why we do that? Because so many of our relationships here are about how we perform. How we perform, how we do. People like me if I'm doing this. My friends accept me if I do this. My parents love me if I do this. My children will think I'm cool if I do this. Right? And, and we slide into that with God and we think the relationship is based on our performance instead of realizing that, that that's a whole different thing. God's relationship with us is based on Him. And as we grow in that, as we, we identify our mission, our gifting, what we're called by God to do, then we need to start looking at how we can be faithfully using what you've been given. How do we do that? How do we actually live out of that? How do we do servant one and servant two and avoid servant three? Gary read in that scripture reading from 1 Peter 4. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We've been given these gifts to share with the world. God has entrusted and the gifts are actually just the Spirit's presence working through these abilities that He's given us, whatever it may be. And our Master's gone on a journey. He's entrusted us with what is His until He returns. And so where do we start in using our gifts? First, we have to start with knowing who God is. That's the key to it all. It's the spring from which all our actions will flow. If we miss that, it, it distorts everything. We've seen this in our series from Peter, right? 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. How? Through our knowledge, through our knowing of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. If we get our picture of God wrong, it distorts everything else about our life. I, I just came back from a quick trip to North Carolina. My mom was here last week and I flew her back home. Um, and since I'm American and Canadian, I, I get to cross the border. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, <laughs> went to Trader Joe's in Bellingham, bought some stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm, out, I'm on this plane, and I, I, know, I know enough about, I'm not, I obviously can't fly a plane, but I've heard enough pilots talk to realize that what, what really happens, the computer or the pilot makes these course corrections the whole way. They said, we're going from Seattle to Charlotte, North Carolina, and they have this 
this thing they're going on, but the whole way it gets a little bit off, the wind blows, or the weather they have to turn. So they're constantly making these course corrections. If a pilot never made course corrections, if they just let the plane set, set it and then let whatever happen, I might end up in Tallahassee, Florida, instead of Charlotte, North Carolina, right? And the same is true in our picture of God. We constantly have to be coming back to the Scripture, living in relationship with Him, living within this community where we can find out who God is and what He's like because constantly in our life we get distorted pictures of who He is and it will blow us off to a direction that we do not want to go. The fruit that comes out of that will be manipulative and vengeful sometimes and controlling because we don't realize who God is. That's why this daily relationship with Jesus is so important. In Colossians, it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So if you want to know who God is, just look at Jesus. I know sometimes people struggle. Look at this Old Testament. He seems really vengeful and all this. But in the New Testament, that, this verse, I hang on to this. If I want to know what God is like, I've got to look at Jesus. I've got to live in a relationship with him. And that's going to help me clarify my understanding of who he is. At the end of 2 Peter, we just finished the series on 2 Peter. He says, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be both glory, both now and forever. I think of Peter, you know, he was a guy that, that had this image of Jesus as sitting on a throne and he was going to make it happen. And, and, then in the, and he also had an image of himself that he was, he was the champion and it all fell apart. And at the end of his life, Peter says, you know what you really need? You need to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. That's the key. And if that's your foundation, if that's your foundational quest, this knowing God, that will help you to discern and use what it is that you've been given. We talk about our commitments here, commitment to relationships and uh, mission and, and worship and learning. Well, this commitment to mission, really what that is, is it's trying to, to remind us that, that God has something for us to do. He's wired you in a way for the kingdom of God to multiply what is his. And far too often we over-spiritualize this. We think in terms of the church walls. We think of a spiritual hierarchy that pastors and teachers are way up top, right? And that's where I'm coming back. The talents were not given based on worth or value, but on ability. There, there, there are different roles that people play that are all equal before God in the kingdom. He has uniquely made us to work together as the body of Christ. I love the story. I probably told it to you before, but back in 20, 2017, the Billy Graham Evangelist Association had a, a question and answer article with Billy Graham. And one of the, the questions he was asked was, who do you think the greatest Christian was who ever lived? And Billy Graham it's a hard question to answer. Only God knows our hearts and minds. Sounds very Billy Grahamish, And only he knows who's followed Christ most faithfully across the ages. But he said, I love this, I suspect, however, there will probably be someone you and I have never heard of. Someone who humbly lived for Christ in very difficult and obscure circumstances, but loved Christ and lived for him regardless of the, cross, of the cost. And I love that because that, that is so true. We, we, we adopt this North American way of thinking that visibility or, or these big flashy things, that's what's important. And so we, we start saying, well, I can't do that. And forgetting that God has entrusted himself to us, something that's his to us, to use for the kingdom. God's given you gifts, and maybe it doesn't seem very spiritual to you, but, but the reality is God goes before you everywhere you go. 
to prepare the way for you to use whatever it is that he's given you. I know it sounds silly, but, but some of the most important spiritual work I do is coaching girls basketball at Hope Secondary School. I really believe that. I know it's not church and it's not this stuff and it doesn't look as religious, but man, there's, there's, there's relational connections that happen there with kids and with families. There's, there's concepts I'm trying to get across to people. And, and I want you to realize that, that wherever you are, God has gifted you. You are called to a ministry. It may be caring for your neighbor over a fence, but when you sit there and you talk to your neighbor over a fence, God goes before you and he does something in that interaction that's beyond your own ability. Maybe working in your office, in your job, in a way that reflects Jesus. God goes before you every single day. This is the mission that we're called to. It might be visiting people who are lonely. It, it might be the conversation you have at the coffee shop. It's just God, God's wired you to do this in a way that brings glory to himself. That's what he's entrusted you with. Romans 12, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve or let her serve. If it's teaching, let him or her teach. If it's encouraging, let them encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let them give generously. If it's leadership, let them govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. Find out what it is. Discern whatever it might be. And part of that's asking people around you. Part of that's asking God. Part of that's looking back over your life and seeing where God may have worked. But then use it. The third thing I'll say is be faithful with a few things. There's a tendency to think, once again, from this North American sense of value, to think the important things are big and visible. <laughs> and yet, even the guy with five talents of whatever it was, you know, it looks like, oh yeah, he got a lot. Well, what did, what did the master say? You have been faithful with little. I will make you faithful. With, I, will, I will give you charge over much. Even what we see as the top dog in, in the story, right, God says, that's nothing. I want you to be faithful in the little things. The key is not to do the big thing, but to do what you find before you at the moment. One of the things I, I teach as I coach basketball to the girls is I, I have this chain, and, and I've, I've beat it in their heads so much that they know. Decisions, habits, moments, culture. And I say, you make little decisions in the moment. You make those repeatedly. You, the... the Practice level, practice intensity level, the way you dribble the ball, the, the way you, you care about detail. You make those little decisions repeatedly, 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 and they cultivate themselves into habits, and all of a sudden you're playing differently. And as, you're, as those become habits, guess what? It comes down to crunch time in a game, and you make a play, and we win the game, and that's a moment. All of a sudden everybody's excited. Wow, look at that. And those moments build up, and it changes the culture around you. And I'd say the same thing is true of the spiritual life. It's these little decisions these little responses to the prompting of the Spirit that develop in you a habit of responding, a habit of using your gift, and then one day God shows up and it's a moment. Wow, he did it. I can't believe he used that little thing I did. And that shapes the whole culture around you. It's the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus in Luke 16, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And see, finally, the thing that holds us back, I think, is our fear, just like number one. We're afraid to launch out. We're afraid to do whatever it might be that God's calling us to do. 
We're afraid our efforts don't matter because we're not high profile enough. We're afraid that people might be, that maybe even God's going to be disappointed because I just can't do it as well as I'd like to do it. And I want this story to remind you that to let grace set you free. <laughs> to risk and to step out in whatever way, may, may, way it may be that God's calling you to right now. I, I, my mom had a great visit with her. She's 87. She's had a really difficult uh, time since my dad died. There was, there was five very, very dark years. She'll tell you that if you ask her. I'm not, she's going to listen to this, so I know I've got to be careful what I say and not divulge her. But it was a hard, hard time. And I think for a lot of that, she felt like God had completely abandoned her. But, but she came through. Her faith was renewed. And now she's actually, I think, serving more joyfully than she ever was before. But she told me two or three little stories about just God prompting her to say something to somebody. And she was terrified. And she's driving home from church. And she knows she needs to say, just say, just make a little connection. And she's like, well, okay, God, if you'll provide a time. And she pulls into the place where she lives. And that person's sitting in the rocking porch by themselves on the front porch. <laughs> And so she said, and she said, I don't know what happened. Another time where, you know, God just, I just felt like God saying, send a little card to this person. And then when I dropped her off back home, that person was like, that card meant so much to me, you'll never even understand. And I love that because you know what it is? My mom's not trying to change the world. She's 87. She feels like that's behind her, obviously. Most of us get to that point where we realize I'm not going to change the world, but she's being faithful in these little tiny things and letting the grace of God set her free. It's not how good she is at anything. It's how willingly she responds to whatever God's led her to. Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Take whatever it is that God has given you. If you don't know, I just make it a matter of prayer. Ask people who know you. What do you think God may be? Where does God use me? And look for these, these, these doors to open. People you're talking to or, or this sense, I need to say this or I need to... Take whatever God's given you and use it in little ways. Be faithful in little. Trusting that he will bring a return on the investment. And one day, you know what? You'll hear that. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You did it. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. God, we want to enter that joy. We have so many hang-ups often. And we ask that you would reveal to us areas where we misunderstand you, pictures we hold of you that lead to fear and refusal to surrender and take a risk. God, let, let your grace set us free to respond and to use the gifts that you've entrusted to us. And God, I just pray that would happen right here in this community. In our church, we talk about our, our desire for for lives to be renewed and a community be, to be transformed by the power of the gospel. So make your nature and, and who you are clear to us in the gospel. Set us free by grace to respond and use whatever gifts we've been given in whatever ways present to us today and tomorrow and the next day until you return. And we just ask God that we could double that we could allow you to, to reap from places that you haven't sown, that people would come to know you, that we've never dreamed possible in ways that we've never dreamed possible because your spirit is working through us. In Jesus' name, amen. And there's, there's a lot of things that God promises in the scripture. One, he says he will, he will conform you to the image of Jesus. He's going to make you look like Jesus. He also says he's going to redeem and restore creation. He's going to 
He's going to bring th- reconcile things to himself in Christ. And in Revelation, he talks about creating a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more weeping or crying or death or brokenness or sin. Love that. And, and I'm sure you've all seen the movies where the guys, the, the big boss guys, like, failure is not an option. Well, <laughs> failure is not an option for God either. That's going to happen. The beauty is failure is not an option is not our responsibility. We don't have to carry it out. He's going to carry it out. And what he says is, will you just take what I've given you? Will you just respond and participate with me by grace day by day in what I'm doing? And that's my prayer for you this week, that you can live freely in the grace of God and use your gift in a way that will bring double and even more back to the kingdom of God. Amen.